read together from verse 2 of chapter 11 of the first letter of the to the Corinthians. I'm going to read from the standard version, the <coughs> not the revised, but the <coughs> original standard version. <coughs> now I praise you that ye remember me in all things, and hold fast the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman praying or prophesying with her head unveiled, dishonoreth her head. For it is one and the same thing as if she were shaven. For if a woman is not veiled, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shame to a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be veiled. For a man indeed ought not to have his head veiled, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the woman without the man nor the man without the woman in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, so is the man also by the woman. But all things are of God. Judge ye in yourselves. Is it seemly that a woman pray unto God unveiled? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman have long hair it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seemeth to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And then, if you will turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The second chapter of Genesis, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground... Uh, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them <coughs> unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And lastly, in Ephesians, and chapter 5. <coughs> chapter 5. <coughs> From verse 22, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the saviour of the body. <coughs> but as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. Nevertheless, do ye also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband. Well, now, shall we turn to this study? Just before we do so, shall we have one further word of prayer? Now, Lord, we have asked Thee to be with us. We have together confessed and recognized our need of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all the truth. And we thank Thee now, Lord, that we can just spread out our time before Thee. We believe, Lord, that thou wilt take note of our cry and of our confidence in thyself, and thou wilt meet us in this time. O oh, Lord, hear us. Take away all strain, all tension. May we just know what it is to be in thy presence. We ask it together in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, as you know, we have had a whole series on the matter of covering. And we have um, gone right through the Old Testament and the New Testament in this tremendous matter, this vitally important matter in the Word of God. I think we have found out that there is within the Word of God far, far more than perhaps any of us realized on this whole subject of being covered, being in Christ. That's what it simply means in New Testament language. To be in Christ is to be covered. Last week, you will remember, we spoke of the mystery of covering, something that is quite beyond us. It's not just to do with sin, even. Uh, altogether apart from sin, there seems to be some need of covering before sin entered the universe. There was the anointed cherub that covereth, the covering cherub uh, that is spoken of. And we have also looked at some other things that at least make us realize that this subject is not just to do with covering for sin and being, as it were, clothed in the garments of salvation. That is marvelous. But it's even beyond that. It is so profound that we cannot um, fully comprehend it. Now, this evening, we come to uh, perhaps um, uh, the most controversial point of all. The sisters, a testimony in the church to cover it. Sisters the testimony in the church, the covering. Now, of course, one's always afraid, in one sense, uh, on the natural level, of such a time as this. For one, knows, <laughs> for one knows full well that a whole number of ladies will come fully armed and prepared um, for the time. Some of us, we may have uh, background difficulties, we may have complexes in the matter. Uh, it's amazing how this subject brings out rebellion and resistance <laughs> and, oh, many other things. I, I just pray that the law by the Spirit will use this time to free us from a lot of these silly things 
that uh, bind us. The sisters, the testimony in the church to covering, to this tremendous subject. Unfortunately, many people approach it by taking the matter of sisters first, and this entirely puts everyone off, particularly the sisters. We have gone the other way round and seen the whole subject as a tremendous thing, far, far bigger than any physical difference between men and women, even in the church. And now we come to this question as to whether, in fact, it is true to say that sisters are meant to be a divinely constituted and divinely given sign in the church to this vitally important truth. We have, of course, a number of signs which testify to and express certain truths. For instance, we all are quite well aware of the sign that we see every Sunday morning and at other times uh, when the Lord so leads us of the bread and the wine. We are quite clear that the bread speaks of something. It, is, it has significance. It signifies something. We are quite clear that the wine signifies something. In other words, there is a testimony within the bread and the wine itself to something far, far greater than either the bread or the wine. Something universal in its significance and meaning. We are all well aware of baptism. When people go down into the waters of baptism and are immersed in the water, we know that it is a symbol. Baptism itself does nothing. The waters are not magical. There's nothing supernatural about it. But in the simple ceremony, there is a sign Something is signified, the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is set forth. I think we are, would all agree that in the laying on of hands there is a sign. Uh, the laying on of hands covers a whole number of things in Scripture, but in it, there is a sign, there is significance of identification with the body or with the church, with the risen head, as other members lay hands on us. I think all of us would agree that anointing with oil when we are sick is another sign. The oil doesn't do anything. Many, many centuries ago, Zwingli in a famous um, a sermon in the Münster in Zurich said, better keep your oil for salad dressing if you think that it's going to do anything to you. He was talking about extreme unction and the doctrine of rushing oil to someone who's dying so that they may get into the kingdom. But he said, better have it on your salad if you think that there is anything supernatural in the Oil, but the oil, the anointing of a sick person with oil is, is in fact a sign. It signifies something. It, it signifies the health and soundness and wholeness that there is for us in the life of God, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, life through the Spirit of God. Well, we could go on. There are other um, signs, too. In many senses, marriage is a sign. It signifies something much more than just two people coming together and the creation of a family, a new home. Something more is signified. I think we're all well aware of these signs. We have no argument about that. Um, now, the point we are making is that it has been given by God to the sisters in their very constitution, their behavior, their attitude, 
their dress to be the perpetual reminder to the whole church of one of the most important truths in the word of God. Now I find it very sad if sisters opt out of such a testimony. I find it extremely sad when sisters jam some hat upon their head without any understanding at all as to what it means. There's no glory in that. There is no real significance in that. Just obeying a regulation any more than someone going to the waters of baptism who's not really saved thinking that the waters and the rite itself will do something. So obviously just wearing a hat as some say in obedience is not going to get us very far. But oh how wonderful it is when this matter is understood not only by the sisters but by the brothers. For I hope that this evening will mean that many of the brothers will understand this matter. Brothers don't always help the sisters in this matter at all. They don't understand. They often think it's just a question of women shutting up and being obedient. And therefore they ought to wear a hat in that context and meaning. So you get the old battle of the sexes brought into the church with all the deep bitterness that comes from it. Freud was right, of course, when he said that one of the deepest things in human life is the battle between the sexes. Now, it's often very, very deep. It's very hidden. We don't often talk about it. But you know, often, even within the people of God, there is this deep-seated uh, battle, a bitterness, rebellion, many other things that come from it. This uh, this ought not to be. Uh, we are freed. We are delivered. We're the people of God. And in that sense, there should be none of that uh, at all. Now, it is very interesting that all that we have studied on this matter of covering is summed up and expressed in this sign in the most remarkable way. Uh, nor is it just to do with head covering. It goes far, far more deeply than that. The sister is a sign in her constitution, not just the hat that she wears or whatever she may um, put on her head. On few subjects can there have been quite so much perplexity, misunderstanding, and in many instances, so much bondage and bitterness produced. I can't think of any subject quite like this matter. I know there are many subjects, prophecy, and many other things that cause tremendous difficulty and complexity, but I can think of no subject that is more perplexing to many sisters in particular uh, than this matter. Certainly, the most extraordinary, and when I say most extraordinary, I mean most extraordinary and mutually contradictory teachings have been deduced from these scriptures that we have read this evening. Theories of adjustment, theories of um, accommodation, what I call accommodation theories. That is, um, you start off on something and uh, fit the scripture into uh, that mold. In other words, the 20th century says so and so and so and so and so and so, that's the society we live in. Therefore, the scripture can't say this. It must, there must be something wrong. Um, all the theories of adjustment that have been propounded on the most weak and sometimes false facts. Now, I have heard with my own ears things which I will not be um, 
repeating this evening, except just one or two, because the time will turn into a time of hilarity. <laughs> I have heard the most amazing theories propounded on these scriptures. It is not unlike the enemy to have sought to obscure a glorious truth and a glorious privilege. If this is a truth in which there is glory and a privilege which is glorious given to some of us, then we can understand Satan coming in as he has with the Lord's table, as he has with baptism, as he has with so many things, to obscure that truth, to make it so perplexing, so complex, that we almost throw up our hands in despair and abandon it altogether. Satan has sought to turn light into darkness. Oh, when I see some of the, the... On the one hand, people who tell me that it's deliverance to throw away your hat. Turning light into darkness. And on the other hand, the most abject bondage and misery into which a whole section of the church have been pushed by this a kind of teaching. Turning light into darkness. Turning privilege into bondage. Turning testimony into misery. Well, I say all that because many folks again, especially the ladies, cannot approach this subject without deep-seated prejudices and biases. I suppose there is no century which it's more difficult for the ladies to approach this subject without prejudice and bias than this day of women's lip. But here it is, we've got to face it. The word of God is the word of God. Now, there are a number of false conceptions from which we need to be delivered. Now, will you all please forgive me if I tread upon your corns uh, tonight? I mean, uh, th we're bound to do it. Um, I knew that before we started. We're absolutely bound to, to, to somewhere or other during the course of this evening tread on cherished notions or, or conceptions or... So. Now, let's all be absolutely open and starting from virgin soil, seek by searching the word of God and looking to the Lord as a result of this evening to find what the Lord really has to say. Now here are what I consider to be some of the false conceptions uh, about this matter. Firstly, the woman is inferior. She is not an equal. An equal partner either in marriage or in the church. She is inferior. And indeed, the whole implication is that she is to be servile. She needs to be seen, but not heard. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that is a fallacy. It's not only a fallacy, it approaches heresy. You have only to think for a moment to recognize that a woman's soul and a woman's personality is as valuable as any man. Obviously. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing. Now, out of this comes much of the bitterness, the prejudice, and the bias against this whole subject. And <clears throat> gentlemen, Christian gentlemen, have not always helped the sisters in this matter. It has often, I'm afraid, been put over in such a way that the sisters' deep-seated suspicion that they are being told that they are unequal and inferior is supposed to be founded in the Word of God. 
but it is nowhere found in the word of God. We shall come to the positive side in a moment, out of which this, this has been twisted. That's the first thing, and the most important, for out of this has come all the bitterness and trouble on this whole matter. The second, this whole matter does not refer to the church meeting, but to prayer privately, or a sister's meeting. For instance, we see in verse 5 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, every woman praying or prophesying with her head unveiled dishonoreth her head. We are told that this is not a church meeting. This is obviously a private prayer, or it is a sister's prayer meeting. Um, this, I don't think, has any foundation. If we look at 1 Corinthians, we find that the Apostle is dealing with church matters and church gatherings. And he is speaking about the contribution of both men and women in the gathering of the church. For this reason, in some circles, a sister's hat is hardly ever removed. My sister, I remember some years going to stay with a rather strict group down in Cornwall in Mevergissey, where to her amazement the ladies there went into the sea even when they put on their bathing costume without at any point removing their hat. Then to her even deeper amazement she found the dear sister at the stove with her hat on. Now the point of it was, she said quite honestly and sincerely from pure motive that, well, she might be praying. Now this is very interesting because in Orthodox Jewish circles this is why Orthodox Jewish men keep something on their head the whole time. Lest at any given moment they might pray and be caught out by heaven. So rather than do that, they have a little black thing on the back of the head which stains there permanently even when they take their hat off. Well, um, that I don't think has any foundation. That's another thing that I think is a false conception. The third, the whole matter is to do with first century customs and has little for us today except that we should learn from it that there is an orderliness and a decorum in the church. Now we are told the veil was in fact to do with the married women and we have been told by some that it corresponds to the wedding ring. And therefore today, if you've got a wedding ring, you can remove your hat. So the spinsters amongst us, it's rather sad, <laughs> but for the married ladies, you can remove your hat because your wedding ring is... Th this is fallacious. Maybe in certain quarters there was such a thing, but never in Jewish circles. In fact, it was the unmarried girls that always wore the veil and the married ones who could uh, more easily discard. They never did discard it. It's quite the other way. Uh, this is a theory of adjustment and we've got to be very, very careful. There is no ground for it. It's not even a, it's not even a weak fact. It's a false fact. Then there is the other, which I was brought up on, that in Corinth, the loose women of the streets never wore a veil. And so the apostle was so afraid that the Christian ladies should be thought of as women of the street that he said all this. In other words, it's only something to do with the first century. It has nothing to do with us today. This is perfectly true. But uh, where do we... Uh, does the apostle really mean this? To go to such lengths, why doesn't he simply say, you know that all around you there are these kind of ladies, you can't do this kind of thing. Why does he say because of the angels? Now here comes the weakness. The same people who say that it belongs to the first century tell us that they believed in the first century that angels were present at their worship. So now we find that a whole passage has absolutely no relevance to any other century than the first two. Where do we end? Shall we throw baptism out? Shall we throw other things out? Where do we end 
on such a thing. There are many other things that are said in this matter of first century custom, it being old-fashioned and antiquarian. We are told that in those days the ladies were veiled from head to foot, that you saw absolutely nothing. Uh, this is, of course, true, that in parts of the world where women and the position of women was degraded, devalued, they were so veiled. But it has been one of the glories of Jewish history that never in its history except when they came from Padan Aram, which was not really looked upon in quite the same way, were Jewish women e ever had their faces veiled. Their heads veiled, but never their faces. So again we have what we call a weak or a false fact upon which a tremendous amount is, is built. That um, the whole thing was an argument about ladies being swathed in a black veil from head to foot. Out of which there were two peepholes. And of course some people who visited the East, because they had seen Bedouin ladies with this black thing all over them, with two little slits here and all sort of uh, uh, um, coins, I thought, now that's what it was like in the old days, when the Apostle Paul was... It's absolute nonsense. Uh, the next um, misconception is this, that if a sister wears a hat, obeying the scripture, that is spirituality. I wish I could believe that spirituality could be so quickly acquired. <laughs> and the tragedy of it is, for some of us who rebelled against this whole matter when we were younger, is that the, the older the hat, <laughs> the more the more dowdy the appearance the more spiritual the sister I remember sitting behind some when we were young in certain conferences wanting to push back the pins in their bun and there it was all out all over a kind of unkempt careless attitude and this was supposed to be spirituality. No wonder people have reacted against something like that. That, of course, is entirely false. Putting a hat on no, no more makes a person spiritual than anything else outward. Then again, uh, that another misconception is that it is a sign uh, that it is the church is a man's world and that sisters have no part or very little influence in it. This is wickedly untrue. The sisters do not have to speak to have a very great influence in the church. Sometimes when sisters speak too much, they lose their influence. God has so positioned us, so constituted us as men and women, that women can influence things very, very greatly by just being quiet and just being women. The last point is, but it's perfectly true. I mean, uh, the old saying um, is that behind every man stands a great woman. I, I think that it is true. Sisters have a tremendous influence and it's only when women um, are insecure that they have to throw their weight around and have to tell people to do this and that and the other and jump in and tell people where they're wrong and all the rest of it. Um, there's, there's much point in this if you go away and think about it. Um, the last misconception I'd just like to mention is that the hat is only to be worn at the church meeting, the meeting of the church. That is the Lord's table. I was always amazed in some of the places I went to when no one wore a hat at all, none of the sisters wore a hat at all, but suddenly at the Lord's table, from the depths of uh, portmanteaus and uh, trunks, sort of wicker hats appeared. And everyone came with a hat. 
Now, I've seen this often when we've been on holiday and elsewhere, that people seem to think that the Lord's table is the meeting of the church. So you wear a hat for that. But other gatherings you can choose. Then again, if you move into a house, you don't have to wear things. This, of course, just reveals our conception of the church. Uh, then again, there is a variation of this idea that you only have to wear something on your head when you pray or prophesy. Um, now, I call that a misconception. Um, right, now let's then come to the point. In what way are sisters assigned in the church to this matter of covering? Um, perhaps we will begin to see this matter more clearly if we first take a look at the brothers. Now, th no, this is true. You see, the whole problem is that everyone thinks that the woman is the sort of son. But in actual fact, first we must look at the brothers. And then, when we've seen what the brothers signify, we shall see much more clearly what the sisters uh, significance or uh, testimony is. Now, the man represents Christ as the image and the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. We read, For a man indeed ought not to have his head veiled, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Now, if you will read in, um, let me read to you rather, in J.B. Uh, Phillips, we read this. Um, a man ought not to cover his head, for he represents the very person and glory of God. He represents the very person and glory of God. The fact of the man's head being uncovered was the sensational thing in Paul's day. I do wish everyone could get hold of this. There was absolutely no question about women uh, having their heads. They'd always had their heads covered. But the fact was that up till that point, men had their heads covered as well. They had the prayer shawl. No child of God under the old covenant would ever come before God without drawing the prayer shawl over his head. Most of them wore something on their head, especially the Pharisee, all the time. You remember when the priests went into the presence of the Lord? They never took those hats off. They had to have, be carefully clothed with special uh, hats, headwear. What did it all mean? It was, it was sensational when the early Christians, the men, uncovered their heads and stood before God praying and worshipping and contributing in the gatherings of the people without that something on their head. Only in pagan worship I think in Roman worship, did they ever uncover their head in that way. Now, the prayer shawl or the hat was a sign that there was something between God and man. There was a veil between God and man. Something blocked heaven. Heaven was closed. The heaven above the man and the woman's head was closed. The, the, the something on the head was a sign of that. Now he is to pray or prophesy with his head uncovered. The veil's gone. Torn in two. It's gone. Heaven is open above him. Sin has been dealt with. Now, it's not the man who's done this, but Christ. And he is the only one who inherently had an open heaven. Remember when heaven opened at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Heaven had never opened to a human being before. <coughs> heaven was open. 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the man is a sign, if you like, of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom there is an open heaven, who has dealt with our sin and has torn away the veil. That, in the early days of the church, was sensational. So sensational, a sister said, my goodness me, aren't we included? This is so marvellous, this is so absolutely wonderful to see all the brothers standing there without anything on their head. It thrills us. Why can't we throw off the veil as well? We're all one, we're all saved. And this is the whole point why the apostle had to write to them and say, don't do it, don't do it. The men signify something and you sisters signify something else. And if you disregard this difference, you will lose something very, very precious. The woman represents not Christ, but the church. She represents the church as the glory of Christ. You see, it says in this passage, the woman is the glory of the man. And the woman represents the church as the glory of Christ. His fullness, who filleth all in all. So the sisters had this tremendous privilege, as the men had the privilege. The men had the privilege of reminding all of us, men and brothers and sisters, that Christ has an open heaven, the veil's gone. And the sisters had this wonderful privilege of saying before us all, we are the church. In ourselves we have no open heaven, but we've got an open heaven in Christ. So don't let any of us who are saved think, ha ha, we are something in ourselves. Heaven opened to us because of what I am. To, see, to, to, to sort of think that somehow or other we can persuade God through good works, having been saved by his grace, we can now persuade him that he can bless us through our good works. No, no. The sister is the perpetual reminder that the only way that the church has of communication with heaven is through her head. Through the Lord Jesus. She is taken out of him. Her place is to be together with him. To be part of him. To be, as it were, his complement. Now, you see, this is why the Genesis 2 passage we read is fundamental to this whole matter. And why also the Ephesians 5 uh, passage we read throws so much light on this whole thing. You see, why did God do this with Adam? Forgive me those of you who've heard me say, speak about this before, but why did he do this? Why, first of all, does it begin in Genesis chapter 2 with this comment, and there was found no helpmeet for him? And then immediately afterwards, very strange to our rational way of thinking, God produces all the animals of the field and brings them all before Adam and says, Now, Adam, would you name these creatures? Now, I used to think when I was first say that was the most strange way of doing things. Why on earth didn't God name them since he had created them? And said to Adam, Now, we'll call this uh, whatever it is, uh, rhinoceros and we'll call this an orangutan and we'll call this a giraffe and we'll call this a, and so on. But no, it was man who had to do it. What was God doing? He was trying to make man realize that he wasn't complete. That there was only half of him there. So much for this question of inequality. He was trying to get over to Adam. Adam, you're not complete. There's only really half of you there. Actually, the other bit's in you. But we've got to get it out. So he put him to sleep when there wasn't a single one of those creatures that Adam could live with. He looked at them all and named them and they trotted off or loped off. But there wasn't a single one, not even the orangutan that I'm told is supposed to be man's great ancestor, that he felt, well, now there's nothing else. Perhaps I'll settle down with her. <laughs> but never. And so God put him to sleep and opened his side and took out bone and fashioned woman. Woman was a creation of God, just as man. And now he woke Adam and said, here. Now Adam didn't say, oh, this is such and such. 
we'll call it such as such. He said, oh, this is entirely different. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I can feel it. This is my other half. I will call her woman because she's been taken out of man. And so the two belong to each other. Now, you see, the whole point of this is that this is a picture of what God did with our Lord Jesus. Do you remember that extraordinary statement of John, um, the, the apostle, when he said, um, I, uh, the, the soldier that stood by the Lord Jesus, when he died, when, as it were, he was put to sleep, when he fell asleep, the soldier rammed the spear into his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And John makes so much of it. He says, I who stood by bear, bear witness to this, and my witness is true. And then he emphasizes it again. Well, what is it all? He's trying to tell us that that blood and water has produced something out of the open side of the dead Christ. People say, oh, but it's redemption. Yes, of course, but the redemption was already ours. There was no need to open his side. The opening of his side was to make us un to understand what God did with Adam when he took Eve out of her. Through the blood and through the water, God has taken a people and elect people for himself. And when the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, it was just as if God was presenting a church to him. And he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called the church. Because she's been taken out of me. Now, when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand the whole matter of covering. I remember Brother Oliphant, in almost the last message he ever gave, saying that woman was taken, Eve was taken out of Adam. And there was a sense in which he always felt that the place of security and safety for her was only when she pressed back into his side. While she was pressed into his side, she was secure and safe. She was covered. Now, some of the sisters say, well, why should we have to do that? But the fact of the matter is, it's a picture of the church. Do you think the Lord Jesus has to flee to the church for security and safety? Think of it like that. Do you think he has to appeal to us to enclose him, to protect him, to keep him? Of course not. Immediately we see it in spiritual terms, the whole thing falls into place. We begin to see that the place of the church is to be hid with Christ. To be concealed by him, to be hedged in by him, to be enclosed by him, to be protected by him, to be overlaid as it were, as the Hebrew word means. We understand it. Now this is exactly what it means. The woman with her head covered, is not just by her head covering, but in her very constitution, her very behavior, her very outlook, her very attitude, and also her dress, to be the sign in the church of this tremendous truth. She is to remind all the brothers, as well as the sisters, that the only safety we've got is to be pressed into the side of Christ. O Lamb of God, still keep me close to thy wounded side. Tis only there in safety and peace I can abide. That is the significance of the sister. She is to remind all of us. Some people seem to think that this matter of wearing a hat or something on the head is just something for sisters to remind them all to be servile, to remind them all to be subject, to shut up. But it is not that. It is far, far greater than that. Do you think that the angels are so bothered? No, no, there's something far greater than that. The significance of the woman's dress and of her behavior um, of the fact that she's a sign is to remind the whole church that their only safety is they've come out of Christ. Their safety is <clears throat> in him. Now, this is exactly really what we've been saying. You see, the woman's point, her, her testimony is this. Only in Christ is there an open heaven. Only in Christ. 
Only in him is there no more veil. Outside of him, dependence. Dependence. Destruction. Rather, may I make myself clear? Only in dependence on him is there safety. Outside of him, destruction. Well, now, can we just have a little closer look in our last moments um, at just what this sign is? There are five things that I think we could just note down and you can go away and look up or think about. Uh, The sister is a sign to the supremacy and centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I call it a privilege. The supremacy and centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Look here in these verses 7 to 9. For a man indeed ought not to have his head veiled for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, translate this immediately in the light of Genesis 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 into spiritual terms, and you've got it. Christ was not created for us. We were created for him. We came out of him and have been created for him. And we are his glory. So we are, so the sister is a testimony to the supremacy and centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, she reminds all of us, brothers as well, every single one of us, the Lord Jesus is everything. We come out of him. That's our origin, our source, the source of our salvation, the source of our life, the source of our well-being, the source of our fulfillment is him. We've been taken out of him. We've been created for him, to please him, to satisfy him, to be a joy to him, and so on and so forth. We are his glory. Well, I think we could say so much about it, but still I think we've said quite a lot. But it's all understood when we see um, uh, it as... Christ and the church. And this is exactly what Ephesians 5 tries to tell us. Um, It states quite clearly that this whole matter is something much more than husbands and wives or men and women. It tells us quite clearly here that it is the church. The church is to be subject to Christ. See, that the wives' subjection to their husbands is in fact a picture of something. We get such unhappy ideas about subjection as if it's civility, as if it means that there's no possibility of communication, no possibility of uh, expression, no possibility of mutual fellowship. Oh, the ideas, the bitterness that has come into this matter. It's so tragic. 